you're hiding in the bush. Some <laughs> some toughs come by, some kind of like Mad Max style, mm-hmm. you know, motorbike gang. You just hide in the bush and go, <laughs> and they go, it's just some bloody dack. And they just keep going. Why would you draw attention to yourself by making any noise? They go, what's that noise? And you go, oh. <laughs> what's that rustling in the bush? <laughs> Do they have ducks in Australia? Uh, yeah, well, do they have ducks maybe in that's Australia? A sign of the post-apocalyptic world that ducks have come to Australia. Enrico, our listener from before, our Australian listener, yeah. do you have ducks in Australia? This is an ignorant question. We could Google this, but instead we're no. This is a more efficient <laughs> process of gathering information. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. This Cornish pasty over here is Daniel. Mm, And the Vermonster is Abby. Type of sandwich. It is a type of sandwich. You yeah. laugh at me every time I eat It's one. got fruit in it. Right, should we read some letters? Because we are still playing catch-up from Christmas. Checking them twice. That's the problem. <laughs> like Father Christmas. <laughs> you know him. <laughs> All right, this one is for you in particular. There's a, there's a little request for accents. I don't know how I should read this all in the accent. What well, accent do they want you to do? They want Belfast. Okay, can you do that? I can't promise Belfast, but I'll try just Ulster. You just gotta talk through your nose like James Nesbitt. Do you wanna do it? They, they didn't want... They, nobody oh, okay. wants my well, accents. We can, we, we, we can both try. <laughs> we can both try. I'll do the Ian Paisley. So, this is from Laura. Just a wee note, note to say how much... This is why I didn't do it. <laughs> just a wee note to say how much I enjoyed the last episode on the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. I'm a theology student from Northern Ireland, so a Lewis episode was a real Christmas treat. (laughs) Measuring Worth, hermeneutic edition, made me cackle very loudly. That's good to hear. Probably shouldn't have listened on the bus. One of them (laughs) buses they have in Belfast uh, that you can cackle on. That said, I was disappointed not to hear Daniel adding a Belfast accent to his repertoire. There you go. Since you were struggling for Christmas-themed books, Maybe Little Women for next year. Thank you both for SMF, FMS. I can't, I never say that. It's a joy to listen to. Thank you, Laura. Thank I hope that was not too <laughs> offensive. No. We're going to get letters after that. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, so Laura, we do actually have Little Women on our long list. That is one of the things that we've come back to over and over again as this would be a good Christmas text. So you and I are on the same page, friend. Stay tuned. Maybe next year. Those are not going to be our Christmas choices this year. So we got another letter from somebody named Emily. I'm listening to episode seven, The God of Small Things, and Abby requested that we write in with the craziest thing we've ever done to impress someone we were romantically interested in. And I've got two that haunt me to this day. Good. So then Emily goes on to tell some very funny stories. Uh, but the second one is that she read Atlas Shrugged for her then boyfriend. Oh, red flag, honey. That is China levels of red flag. Mm, ironic that you would use the term red flag considering how libertarian (laughs) the text is. She's not a big deal over here, is she? No, she's only big in the States, really. They love her, but, well, the the libertarian crowd loves her. A lot of state backing 
it seems, yeah. ironically. This is an email from Tiago. Tiago. This is an email from Tiago. <laughs> he was one of my exchange students Thank you. last year, so he wrote in at the end of the course, and at the end of his email he had this very nice note. I'll take the liberty of briefly mentioning that a certain podcast, wink wink, wink emoji, so wink wink wink, has currently piqued my interest in known but not yet read literature, as well as podcasts in general, and I look forward to future episodes abroad. So that's that's good. Thank Aww. you, Tiago. Thank you, Tiago. You were a joy to have in class, and I'm glad that you found the podcast and it, and it was helpful. Yes. Okay, and now for our, you know, our usual MA plug. Here at Aston University, we have started up a new MA in English. We also have obviously an undergrad program in English. So if you want to be taught by us, you know, Daniel and I, we can teach you a lot. We can continue to nurture you and develop you, you know. This is just the, the surface, isn't it? This is it just really the first is. layer. Yeah, this is this is the, the You get a freebie, then you have to pay. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think that up but I'm not yeah. I'm not as hip to the heroin scene as you are. Ooh. I think we were trying to do an MA plug and then got Carry on. distracted. Yeah. Yeah, well, if you want this weird cokey energy from two non-drug users, you can come study with us. caffeine. The university is going to get so mad at us. We mm. really can't use this one. So, Daniel, what is our text today? Crime and violence. Gated communities. Corporate greed and political corruption. Weird new cults springing up everywhere. Alternative lifestyles. And I don't know what's worse, the cannibalism or the acorn bread. <laughs> you know, it's pretty obvious where we are. California, the westernmost outpost of Western civilization, where its many contradictions converge. It's obvious where we are then, but when is it? The 1850s? The 1960s? The 90s? Or maybe sometime quite soon from now? Because we're doing post-apocalyptic, or maybe pre-apocalyptic, novel Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. <laughs> That was a that was a much more classic. You're you're returning to the heart of the craft, the basics. You're back to basics. That yeah. was a a very traditional set the scene. Yeah. Well, I feel like we need to cling to certain old values <laughs> in this age of collapsing <laughs> civilization. So it goes without saying, we're about to spoil this novel for you. Oh, the content warning! Ah. Oh God! Yeah. Yeah. Just okay. General apocalypse, full stop. Pretty much anything you can imagine in an apocalyptic novel, it's probably nuclear here. bombs. No. Oh, sorry. Carry on. We got fire. We got climate change. We got racism, disability, and pain. Lots of sexual assault. Cannibalism again. Just about as much variety of violence as you can imagine. I mean, Daniel and I just kind of thought we'd play the comedy on nightmare mode <laughs> this episode. So, uh, good luck to us. Good luck to you, sir. Yeah. I want to give you a hand for, um, you know, setting up this text for us. A severed <laughs> a one severed found one. in a canyon. <laughs> um, that's such a shit joke. Would you like to do some background, please? Of course. So <laughs> Ooh, formal today. Yeah. We have formal Daniel in the house. So, Octavia Butler. She was an American science fiction writer, started writing in the 1970s, died in 2006. Her first big hit was the Time Warp novel, bit of a bit of a fun adventure, Kindred, which she wrote in 1959. Yeah, a book. I love this book. If you think that Parable of the Sower is too dark for you, I would really recommend Kindred. Not to say that's not dark, but it's... Slightly easier going. It's, yeah, a much, much more of an adventure yeah. romp with then, like, a sort of, a sort of, um, side garnish of harrowing. 
rather than heroin being well, the, the pretty, entree. I think it's a pretty twisted book, actually, but we'll talk about that anyway. But, yeah, no, it's, it's easier going, though. She also wrote uh, Blood Child, 1984, and Fledgling, 2005, among other things. Parable of the Sower is a sort of uh, dystopian or maybe post-apocalyptic or maybe pre-apocalyptic. It's kind of hard to tell, isn't it? Set in 2024, it was the first of an intended series, anyway, and she wrote a sequel, Parable of the Talents, but then, you know, gave up after that. But, you know, we're, we're kind of living... Living the sequels anyway, aren't we? Well, she she was halfway through writing the final one and she died. Yeah. So we were gonna get it, but yeah, as you're saying, we're we're filling in the blanks. Yeah. This is um you know real world Mad Libs happening yeah, here. But the thing is, yes, she she writes some of the bleakest books I've ever read. But there's something that I find oddly optimistic about her work, which I think has a sort of a slightly revolutionary edge. Um, I think it's kind of a commentary on the black experience, which we'll discuss below. Because, you know, Cormac McCarthy, she ain't, and I really mean that as a compliment. There's Oh, there. yeah, there's a kind of radical conviction to and it, maybe. We'll talk about this later, but you don't get a lot of voices in post-apocalyptic or dystopian fiction that aren't white men. Mm. So to have a black woman writing this, it feels hugely different from most of the literature. Because you and I teach on an apocalyptic fiction course. Yeah, it it was very hard to actually find authors beyond Octavia Butler that were just not white men. Well, then maybe let's talk about that a bit. So yeah, Butler was black, and so people often read her works in sort of terms related to our identity, so they, you know, oh, alien parasitism, that's a bit like, you know, slavery or racism or whatever, you know, they kind of try and wed the themes of the text to her kind of background. And also, you know, because she's a woman, all the sort of body horror and the unequal symbiosis, that feels like a sort of critique of traditional femininity or traditional gender relationships. Obviously, yeah, you don't want to only view her works in these terms, that's a limitation. But I think it's almost, yeah, like you're saying, Abby, it's almost beneficial to do the opposite, to to read all these post-apocalyptic or dystopian or science fiction texts by white men and see how they're always about, you know, a guy goes back to the Middle Ages and he, like, single-handedly industrialises it or becomes the coolest knight in town, (laughs) you know. Or, like, yeah, Robinson Crusoe's a bit like that too, isn't it? Oh, a guy just single-handedly industrialises an island. They're just as much maybe speaking from their background as Butler is from hers. And she's actively critiquing their approach as well, isn't she? That's the thing. She's looking at a genre and critiquing it. Yeah, a lot of the things that we've sort of discovered teaching this module is that it's a very conservative genre because it's all about, well, who gets to survive? Who deserves to survive? Mm -hmm. What things, you know, should we bring forward? Who gets to allocate the resources? And it's a very sort of macho genre in a way that is often quite dysfunctional. Yeah. So to have a different voice here, it feels a little bit like a breath of fresh air, even though it's the most fucked up shit you can imagine. I didn't know if this was at all feasible, Mm -hmm. but there are some very obvious analogies in the book with kind of historical or contemporary things. And I wondered if it was worth having a kind of analogy um, jingle. I was thinking about this because she... She's writing this in 1994, about 2024. She gets a lot really right, like, spookily correct. And she makes a lot of wink-wink allusions to historical events or, you know, sort of other things that have really happened that we're now sort of repeating the same problems. Mm. So I think you're right that we need some sort of allegorical... Sting. What would that be? Based on the inspiring true story. Right, we're about to go down a very dark rabbit hole here. I think we should start this episode on a prayer. Yes, please. Don't you, Lord? Please protect Daniel and I on this horrible journey. 
you protected Mark Wahlberg through the events of The Happening, and I know there's no way you don't love us way more than you love that guy. So, my regards to baby Jesus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen that film, but I'm sure it's something yeah. I can get behind. Say amen, f Go close this out. Yeah, yeah, amen. Don't leave the big JC hanging. So, Parable of the Sower. It's presented as the diary of a teenage girl, Lauren Olamina. What is it called when something is written as a diary? Epistolary novel, please. We need a sting for that. We say that every episode. Yeah. If you guys don't know Fluttering by now. Pages. So, every chapter also, however, it's not just the diary, it also begins with an epigraph from a mysterious text called Earthseed, the Books of the Living. It's some kind of weird religious screed whose relation to the main narrative is, you know, unexplained at first. So our first epigraph reads as follows, quote, All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. Uh, so we've got line breaks, we've got capital C change. It's all very strange. And it's signed by Lauren Alamina. So I wanted to, this is such a weird place to start. So it's her diary, but she's starting it with these little epigraphs from a book, I guess she's also written. And I'm like, that's a great place to start your analysis, right? So we know from page one that either she is incredibly conceited by like quoting herself in her own diary, yes, which, you know, maybe, or that her book eventually gets so big that it's actually totally appropriate for like publishers to quote it in some, you know, published version of her teenage diary. Yes. So we're both. like, which, which one is it? Or both. And, or both. And it never gets resolved in this book. I think, no, I think yeah. it does to some extent in the second. Yeah. Oh, cool. It's 2024 and we work out that she lives in a gated community with her father and her stepmother and they're living in a period of like, acknowledged decline. Well, this is the thing, because it's quite disturbing that this is 2024 and, you know, we're reading this now. That's next year. I know. Well, that's the thing. When I want speculative fiction of the near future, I am after some George Jetson-ass automation. Like, I was hoping when I cracked this up and I was like, good, I'll get people making out with their own holograms. You'll have a Roomba in a little apron feeding People making out with their own Roomba. <laughs> From, you know, yeah, I want pellet food. People making out with some pellet food. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm outraged that everything that she wrote is almost exactly what's actually happening, or probably will be happening. Yeah, except for rumbers. There's not a single rumor in this text. So, <laughs> she... Sorry, we have to laugh to keep from crying, because guys, it's gonna get dark. Daniel and I, are, we're, we're in those tinfoil blankets here. We've been through some trauma. So today is Lauren's 15th birthday, which coincidentally is also her father's 55th birthday. And there's a lot of tension in the book between similarities and differences between Lauren and her dad. They have a sort of love-hate relationship. Lauren, this morning, wakes up from a nightmare. She was learning to fly in her dream, but fire came out of nowhere and sets her alight, and it's really horrible. And this will become thematically important. Just remember, you know, fire and destruction, you know, clipping her wings. She's a precog. So there's a lot of world building going on in this early bit, but the long and the short of it is, Lauren's dad is a fairly well-off Baptist minister, and they all live just outside of LA. And I'm gonna tell you right now, whatever he is praying for, God ain't answering. He's about to get seriously holy ghosted. Now, there's a lot of tension because Lauren is secretly a non-believer, or at least not in, quote, that God, the big daddy God. Love that guy, Tennessee Williams. <laughs> also, the way she 
frames that. I mean, the big daddy god? Man, if only I had taken Psych 101 and I could figure out what that meant. Thank you very much, Sigmund Freud. <laughs> Back to the world building. So kids aren't even really allowed to go to school. Nobody ever leaves the house unarmed. Water is so incredibly expensive that if you go out looking clean, it means that you're probably rich and you're definitely gonna get robbed. So Lauren's family has special dirty going out clothes. They're yep. Sunday worse, basically. <laughs> Gasoline is so expensive, no one uses cars anymore. Most people in the US are homeless now. There's a new drug out that's called pyro that basically turns people into incredibly violent arsonists. So you have to be really careful about running into them or about fire in general. It's so dangerous, you can't even risk stopping to help injured people anymore. Don't worry, it gets worse. Hey, Lauren's mother was a drug addict of something called Parasetco, and she died when Lauren was very young. Her father remarried Corey and had a bunch of sons with her. They're all en route to getting baptised, and we, Lauren introduces us to her half-brother, Keith. I think having someone called Keith <laughs> is the true dystopia. Um, I just can't get over him being called Keith. <laughs> Quote, he's my stepmother's favourite. Three smart sons and one dumb one, and it's the dumb one she loves best. No. So Lauren has this quite snarky, funny yeah. attitude. I, I quite like her. Oh, no, yeah, so. I like her, yeah. So Keith's, <laughs> Keith's dream is to leave their suburban town, Robledo. Are you going to laugh every time yeah, you say his name? funny Keith. <laughs> and seek his fortune in L.A. nearby. But obviously the city's a very dangerous place, but then again, so too is their town. So yeah, as Abby was saying, the street poor are dangerous. Well, where we're on this kind of bike ride, this expositional bike ride, she sees all of these rough sleepers and quote, at least three people who weren't going to wake up again, ever. One of them was headless. <laughs> you know, Daniel, I, I thought I'd have more time to process the world that we're living in, but we're off. We're off to the races. And it's trauma fodder leading by a head. <laughs> so Lauren glosses over all these different scenes of decay and immiseration. There's lots of malnourished and kind of maimed people. But she's actively glossing. This is not just literary laziness. Because she's making a special effort not to look. Why not? Because she has what she calls hyperempathy syndrome. So this is an organic delusional syndrome that she got from her mother's drug addiction when she was pregnant with Lauren. So... The conceit here is that it makes her experience others' feelings, so pleasure and pain alike, and she sometimes even shares their symptoms. She's I'm like, actually an empath. <laughs> By the way, I looked this up, to, I was like, that's not a real thing, is it? Of course it's not, I'm an idiot. But she talks about how when she was a kid, before she got her period, she used to actually bleed through her own skin if she saw somebody else bleeding, and her brother Keith, who like wasn't in any actual pain, used to fake getting cut to mess with her, and she would try to beat his ass, but it only felt like she was punching herself. Mm. And her, her dad doesn't think that the syndrome is real, so there's a lot of really interesting ableist discourse. Her dad is very much like mental illness isn't real, just do some vitamin C tablets about it. But the, the important thing is that despite her dad not thinking it's real, he hides the condition from everyone outside their family. So Lauren's kind of not that well liked around town. Conceal, don't feel. Aw, stitch that on a pillow. Yeah, it's frozen. <laughs> what? Uh, how have you seen, how have you seen frozen? Well, you sit down in front of a telly with frozen on and you watch it. That's how I did it. 
So Lauren goes around with everyone thinking she has sort of this resting bitch face, but actually she's secretly in pain most of the time and nobody knows. I don't want to sound a little bit moralistic, right? But the impression that Lauren gives of her little gated community, her very privileged world, is also kind of dysfunctional, isn't it? She talks all about childhood brawls, like you were saying, and also lots of teenage sex. That's they, not right, is it? They have sex very yeah, young in this yeah, book, yeah. at like 12. Yeah, yeah. I was really... Maybe maybe I'm just a... a, a that's what I thought. Am I, am I just one of these... Am I just some an old stick no, in the mud? But I thought that's, that's yeah, it's a sign of it's young. a sign of a dysfunctional community or a community without much of a future. So these kids are aging quite quickly. And they've also got bugger all to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we get the end of this kind of expositional bike ride. She reaches this fortress church, which I thought was a cool image. It's a bit sort of, that's a bit of a post-apocalyptic, like medieval. The church is this new center of authority. She gets baptized. She muses a bit more on Christianity and its various inconsistencies. And she's like, well, what if God is something else altogether? And, you know, that's the germ of the, the seed, if you will, of her future theological creation. What if the only lasting thing in the world is change? Yeah. You know, and lo, God said, go forth, Lauren, and give us the premise to madmen. Silly old mate. I was thinking of Heraclitus, but well, whatever, you know. I mean, you could be, could be madmen. Heraclitus is obviously pales in comparison. You love madmen. And I've never even read a word of Heraclitus. Exactly. I'm trying to make a joke here, and you're bringing in Heraclitus. The weeping philosopher. I should be bringing in Democritus, the laughing philosopher. Is that what you're saying? This is all gold. <laughs> I'm saying you should hush now. Okay. Maybe. I'm about to throw a blanket over you so you'll go to sleep like a bird. Yeah. Okay. We find out that there's been a recent attempt to colonize Mars, and the mission was a disaster, and one of the astronauts died up there. But Lauren really loves the idea of space exploration, and she thinks it's their only way out of global warming and sort of catastrophe. Daniel, is it too early in the episode for a Uranus joke? Um, funny about my... Um, <laughs> get a lot of the local flavor, you know, of the neighborhood, all these little feuds and tragedies and relationships. And there's an increasingly fundamentalist family, the Mosses. So the, the patriarch of the family, he started his own little religion, kind of like what Lauren is trying to do. But his religion has multiple wives because he's kind of rich and he can afford to just buy beautiful homeless women off the street. And he's a water them. engineer, isn't he? Carry on. Sorry, I, I don't know why to... But I just like that. that he's, a, he's a kind of... <laughs> Engine like an infrastructural engineer slash cult leader. Baby, I got that that sweet water money. Yeah, that, that yeah, f yeah. you water money. I do what I want. I suppose like ancient Mesopotamia. What was that but a cult slash water management <laughs> kind of crossover? Okay, so Lauren, who's black, she and her dad are black. They think a lot about sort of new forms of slavery. So either sexual slavery, like you know Mr. Moss and his wives that he buys. Or, like, the wage slavery of factory towns, which are kind of coming back. And that's where, if you guys have ever read The Grapes of Wrath, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Based on the inspiring true story. That's where people, you know, go there for jobs, but they, you know, they have to live in the accommodations provided by the company. They, they buy food, the overpriced food provided by the company, and they basically end up in debt mm. to their employers which they're never going to be able to pay off, so they end up basically working for free. Pay my wage to the company's store. What's that? Is that song? I don't know that. You don't know that? It's quite a famous song uh, about company stores, company towns. I've never actually heard music before. Oh, right. Well, you, so, didn't, you didn't hear it then either. <laughs> <laughs> but 
pin in this. There's more on the company stuff later. I will do. We hear all about the newly elected president, too. And, you know, of course, he's just the same as all the other politicians, making these big promises that no one actually believes. The president, who is named Morpeth Donner... Morpeth's a town, isn't it, in Northumberland? Is it? Yeah. I like that his campaign would be the Donner Party. Indeed, Which I yes. thought was... If, if you guys don't know what the Donner Party is, because most of my students don't, just look it up. Look up the Donner Party and write in and tell us what you found. Based on the inspiring true story. So he's a bit of a Trump figure. Like, she, she's really sort of predicted the political landscape here. And he proposes these extreme measures to sort of make America great again and to get things back, quote-unquote, how they were. But Lauren is terrified of this, and she says what he wants to do will actually, quote, set the country back a hundred years. No! And not in a good way. Yeah, because if they've had a period of decline, then maybe that's good. But no, but no. it's bad. Yeah, in, in true form, President Donner, he privatizes everything, he abolishes the minimum wage, he gets rid of environmental and worker protection laws, he cuts all social welfare programs in favor of big companies. Based on the inspiring true story. Lauren sees pretty clearly, you know what? This is it. Society's on the verge of a proper collapse. This is it. Come on, Daniel, say something funny. Got all these walls and these, this really sharp wire that, like, slices birds up. And still the burglars get in. That's not funny. <laughs> you and I are just staring yeah. at each other going, what have we done? Why did we choose this book? It's a good book. Do you have anything from your stand-up special you want to inject here? Give us a little bit of levity? Um, Netflix would tear me a new one if I, <laughs> if I reused that. That, that material's theirs now. Lauren's dad, who is known as Dad... He's a bit like Dennis the Menace's dad, who was only ever known as dad. Do we never find out his name? No. Oh, Big Daddy God. Indeed he is, yes, yes. Thank you very much, Sigmund Freud. So, he likes guns, doesn't he? He's very into guns. Maybe you have to be in this sort of world. He has a silenced submachine gun, and I thought that was cool. Is he a mafia goon? Slash Baptist preacher. I'm sorry, have we transitioned to Fat Sam's Grand Slam speakeasy all of a sudden? Yeah. The mega churches. Send you boys to the pearly gates. <laughs> yeah, so he takes a bunch of kids out into the woods for target practice. With the silenced submachine gun? I don't know, I... but the point is, it's just he thinks that all the, the kind of neighborhood teenagers need to get good with guns. Oh, I think Norman Rockwell did a painting of this. So Lauren wonders, you know, if I were to shoot a person, would that, you know, if I killed somebody, would that hyper-empathetically kill me because of my condition? Anyway, they're in the hills, they run into a feral dog. Now, a little, little bit of lore, a little bit of parable of the sower lore. People don't have dogs because they need meat, so they've just kind of let them loose, and now they run around and they're just these like packs of feral dogs that roam the country, they're free and they're dangerous. So Lauren shoots one, and she does actually feel the impact of the bullet herself, which she says is something beyond pain. But then she's like, oh, I had felt its life flare and go out, and I was alive, so that's nice. We all have formative episodes of shooting dogs, don't we? And this is hers. Yeah, she's had her first blood. She realizes it won't kill her. Good day for Lauren. Yeah. Lauren tells all of her friends, you know, because now she's predicting this kind of inevitable collapse of the community. She starts telling her friends to get sort of um, what you call bug-out bags. Do you want to talk about bug-out bags? I mean, every American knows there's going to come a day when you're going to have to yikes yourself right out of town. 
I grew up with a bug out bag. You know, you have a tornado comes down, you know, some natural disaster. You have your papers, you have a change of clothes, a hammer, some duct tape, some food, a water bottle, change of shoes. Just your emergency bag. Uh, yeah, so she has a bug out bag, like any patriotic American. I would say the tradition of the bug out bag is the thing I'm the most patriotic about after, like, Mount Rushmore. And she says that they need to start learning about everything they can do to survive in the wilderness. She gets into trouble for doing this, for scaring people, and her friend's parents don't really like, you know, Lauren saying this to their kids. But her dad is like, okay, I'm telling you off, but you are ultimately right. We just need to frame this differently. It's all about spin, isn't it? It's all, <laughs> it's all about the PR. We need to teach people to prepare for the, you know, inevitable collapse of our community as sort of just a fun, you know, hobby entertainment thing, not as a kind of fear-mongering thing. You know, it's just a pleasant weekend course in survivalist techniques. It's nothing nothing weird. Fisher Price is my first prepper set. <laughs> anyway, the community starts to amp up its security and they even get a neighborhood watch. This is because of these kind of repeated burglaries. Some burglars do come, nonetheless, and they pilfer fruit. Scrumping apples, weren't they? They were scrumping. <laughs> bit, of, bit of post-apocalyptic scrumping. <laughs> I'm confused about this, right? Because they have no water. They have the dyingest lawn in California. How do they still have allotments going? They never quite fully explained that to me. Whatever, it's been scrumped now. It's gone. You don't even need to question it. <laughs> There's a bit of debate in the community about what they should start doing with burglars. Should they shoot to kill? Corey's like, what about thou shalt not kill? And Lauren's dad says... Nehemiah 414. Ooh. Just out bibled her. Because Nehemiah is obviously much more important than uh, Leviticus or Whip. Is that the one with the <laughs> commandments? Uh, Exodus. Uh, I just hope that everyone sort of does a like live studio audience like, ooh, yeah, when I he did. says. I yeah. actually out loud was like, wow. Um, what is Nehemiah 414? Well, if you remember from our Robinson Crusoe episode, when you see references like that, look that sh up. Lauren does that. We don't even have to do it. Lauren does it. And I looked and rose up and said to the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, be not afraid of them. Remember the Lord which is great and terrible and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. So it's fine to fight, the Bible says. That night, more thieves come and they try to poach rabbits that this family are kind of raising in for meat and pelts in an old garage. Corey's freaked out that things could turn ugly and she and Lauren's dad have a row, so there's this kind of sense that not only is society collapsing, but so too is the family unit, you know, father and stepmother are having a, a bit of a row too. Ooh, yeah. good Microcosm, read. macrocosm. Um, I like this bit, just one of the things they learn is how is to harvest acorns to make acorn bread. And the dad's like, people out beyond our walls don't even do that, they're so stupid they think you can still rely on barley for bread. Take that, Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> Acorn bread is some great depression ass food. Yeah, I was yeah, yeah. I was really like perversely into it. I'm like, ooh, it's like that one winter and little house on the prairie where they make the black bread. That that shit you read when you're seven and it stays with you the rest of your life. Just turn the toaster down, I would. <laughs> <laughs> so we get a little more of Lauren's religious development. Quotes. Hooray. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Lauren tells us sometimes naming a thing helps one to begin to understand it. And the particular God is change belief system that seems right to me will be called... What's she going to call it? Um, uh... Wrong. <laughs> she calls it... Vermonsterism. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> They're in California, dummy. 
That's what they should do, though. Vermont is the chosen land. They always go they go to Canada, but frequently in these texts, Vermont is the place where people can go away and be happy. First state to abolish slavery. You told me this the other day. Yep, sorry. One well, good thing I've heard about the place. <laughs> sorry. She wants to call her religion Earthseed, and she came up with the name while gardening. Who <laughs> thought? Because she was thinking about the way plants seed themselves. They have no ability at all to travel great distances on their own power, and yet they do actually travel. What about tumbleweed? That's still not on its own power, it's the wind. Oh, you really thought you had something there. Screw you, Lauren. (laughs) 15 year old girl, fictional girl, leave her alone. That was the saddest gutcha I've ever seen. I mean, we can talk about this in the analysis, what the yeah. parable of the sower is, but it's, yeah, it's, it, is this heavy-handed? She never explicitly says... The book ends with it. Yeah. But I think that's, it's not heavy-handed because she's trying to come up with a non-Christian religion, but then the analogy is with Christianity. So there's uh, it something still works. Kind of, there's a contrapuntalism there. Ooh, contrapuntalism. Why are you wearing a monocle? just have a problem with one of my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so Lauren's been writing up her ideas over the years, and now she's compiling them into one volume. Some might say a manifesto, mm. but she's she's also assembling her survival pack, her bug out bag. She's got a canteen and some toiletries, sewing kits, some dried food, shoes. What food? Everything. Dried nuts, fruit, flour. I knew I would not be able to get away with not listing out the I love all the lovely nuts and seeds, and that sounds nice. You are also a woodland creature. A critter, if you will. Her dad is like, we don't need to do the whole bug out bag thing. Nothing's gonna happen. We can build back better in the neighborhood. But Lauren's like, dad, you're a fool. We gotta, we gotta move north. I think we should go to Canada. And honestly, Daniel, I don't hate the pitch. I think that's a pretty good idea. Mm. But the border with Canada is highly militarized. Quote, people get shot every day trying to sneak into Canada. Nobody wants California trash. Whoa, remind you of anything? Next border down, build that wall. It's like that, isn't it? Based on the inspiring true story. It is, and on top of that, it's another... Underground railway. It's another underground railroad. True story. And it's a Grapes of Wrath reference. True story. Because in California, they're like, we don't want all that oaky trash. Also, I like that the state lines are are militarized. It's like the American Civil War or something, (laughs) you know. Lauren is still obsessed with space travel, and she thinks, quote, the destiny of Earthseed, her new religion, is to take root amongst the stars. Scatter the seed all through space. (laughs) Is that what she wants to do? I don't know. I don't understand what this means. All I know is that she is hearing it in the Field of Dreams voice, and I really hope this ends with a game of space ball with Shoeless Joe Jackson, but it's not. It's not. You're going to get a lot of home runs in space, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> you got anything to say before I go on? Because I feel like I talk for ages in this section. I'm letting, I'm giving the man a, a chance to speak. Thank you. We need our space. No, I don't know. Okay. I refuse. <laughs> you seed the floor. I'm, I'm an ally. I refuse. <laughs> So Keith, Lauren's idiot younger brother, he's always trying to be more grown up than he is, and he runs off alone one day, which he's absolutely not supposed to do. And he comes back home the next day in just his underwear. The Nick Nolte look. Mm. It's timeless. 
So but the the long and short of it is, as you know, his father had warned him, he got robbed and beat up, and it's very lucky something worse didn't happen. And importantly, whoever robbed him stole the key to the front gate. So everyone is on high alert. The, the neighborhood is, like, really worried about this. And Keith, understandably, gets punished. Stupid. He's a little fucker. Yeah. And I I hope he never sees the gates of heaven. I'm going to cut that from, because that's a weird thing to say about a child. <laughs> so a little while later, when Keith has been forgiven, the parents give him a BB gun for his birthday to help lessen his desire to do target practice with the big guns. Like, you know, you can't, you can't go out the, with the big kids yet, but here you go. Within hours of getting the BB gun, Keith again goes outside the compound to do his cowboy shit, and he immediately goes missing. So the family is sick with worry for days. They call the police, who do nothing, but they give them an expensive bill for their trouble. Yeah. But still no sign of Keith. I'm real broken up about it, in case you couldn't tell. Yeah. Finally, he comes strolling in one day, shit-eating grin, wearing this nice, expensive new clothing, and he, you know... Monocle. <laughs> you dress yourself in the Keith school. Yeah, Keith core. <laughs> you gone full Keith core. Yeah, Keith core. That explains why you stumbled in in just your underwear the other day <laughs> at the office. The implication is that Keith has taken his BB gun and turned to a new life of sort of like hard crime. I mean, he's clearly the sort of teenager who whispers the Scarface monologue to himself in the mirror every morning. You don't know this, do you? First you get the uh, money. Then you get the sugar. Then you get the power. Oh. Then you get the women. Yeah. The father smashes Keith's BB gun in response, and he gives him a whoopin'. We are in rented mule territory, which of course makes Lauren feel like she's been beaten too, because she sees the whole thing. The next day, Keith, supremely pissed off and extremely 14 years old, steals their father's proper gun and leaves again. And he keeps coming back to visit the family occasionally. Each time he has like a huge wad of money, and he has a bunch of sweets for his brothers. The Big medallion. Ooh, like Flavor Flav. <laughs> that's not in the book. This is that's not on canon, but I'm extemporizing. During one of his return trips, Lauren is able to pry out of him exactly how he survives, and it is pretty fucked up. She's disgusted to learn that because he's still a boy, he gets travelers to warm up to him and trust him, and then when they're not looking, he murders them and steals their money. And he's like, Hey, babe, that's just the way of the world outside these compound walls. And, you know, he says, like, you better not leave because you're not going to last a day out there due to your hyper-empathy condition. He also warns her, beware the paints. These are people who take that horrible pyromania drug and they paint their skin all these crazy colors and they set fire to everything. It's kind of like if, um, if one of the Purge sequels was set during Burning Man. <laughs> Keith is murdered soon thereafter at only 14 years old. Screw that guy. Yeah. Keith, we hardly know ye. I, I imagine they all sort of toasted him and they're like, Keith was related to us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, neighborhood's falling apart, there's more robberies, more violence. Lauren is like, yeah, these incursions are killing us slowly. Not killing us softly. <laughs> killing us slowly. You know, meanwhile, quote, Something new is beginning, or perhaps something old and nasty is reviving. So we have all this, you know, this news about a nearby town that's been taken over by a company and it's going to turn into a kind of big company town. The people of this town have to work for a pittance and live on the company property. Oh my god, this book is like passing a kidney stone. Yeah, yeah. 
And this is, I mean, this is, again, she sort of predicted this by looking to the past, because aren't there, like, Google towns, and I think Zuckerberg is trying to start a Facebook town. I think Musk has, like, a... Zuckerberg is going to be called, cool, isn't it? <laughs> St. Zuckersberg. Based on the inspiring true story. But Corey thinks it sounds like a, a pretty good place. Maybe they should go there. Maybe they should make an application. But Lauren and her dad are kind of like, yeah, I know what's going on. This is like the old company towns. Well, I have a very lame prefab here, and this is a joke I've used with you more than once. Goody. I wrote, the company town is taking the means of production and turning it into the cruels of production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I quite like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really? Because you didn't like it the first five times I've used it on you. <laughs> I'm... You know, things need to be beaten into me like it. You're like an Etch-a-Sketch. It's great because I, I can tell you things. Gossip, secrets, hidden treasure, and a mild shake and it's gone. <laughs> One day, Lauren's father disappears on his way back from work. They send out a search party and the most they find is the severed arm of a black man, which could be Lauren's father, but they're just not sure. The family is like, okay, we, we can safely assume that he's dead, whatever happened to him. Uh, how are we going to make ends meet, though, without his salary? Lauren steps up and she starts doing some of his sermons at the church, and apparently she's very good at it. Uh, we got a little, you know, a little preacher in the, mm. in the making. The daughter They're... of a preacher man. <laughs> All right, so here's the big, like, final scene of Act One. One night, some pyro junkies break into the compound, and they just set everything on fire and as everyone's running around they just start murdering people who you know are trying to save themselves and, and their homes lauren grabs her buck out bag and manages to run off but she has no idea if her stepmother and half brothers managed to escape or not i do feel like lauren's dodged a bullet only to be shot by 700 bullets mm. over the course of this novel she spends this horrible night away and the next day she goes back to find people ransacking what's left of her house and this world operates very much like a video game where, like, any time somebody dies, you, you immediately go over and see what cool loot they dropped. She meets up with the only other two people from her compound who survived, a young man named Harry and one of the that religious fundamentalist dude's young wives, Zara. They break the news that Lauren's stepmother and all of her brothers were killed. With nowhere else to go, the three of them band together, Lauren starts disguising herself as a man to make the group seem less vulnerable, and the prefab I wrote is, it's a vegan sausage fest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they decide... That still got it. <laughs> after, after you're looking bored into the middle distance, yeah, like, yeah. Fuck this guy, yeah, yeah, I'll yeah, make yeah, him yeah, laugh. Yeah. So they decide to walk to Canada, where they hope conditions will be better. So what, you really glossed over a lot of cool shooting and stuff? Is that why you weren't reacting to my... I was just thinking, like, where's all this cool stuff? Where's the bit where, um... Where's the cool bit where she goes back to the burned neighbourhood the next day and these, like, poor people are rooting around her house and she sees the dead body of a pyro and they go, respect her body because she died for us. Yeah, so like, there's this like weird solidarity. They think it's just like Hobbesian nightmare, but actually there is a solidarity between all these kind of nutters. Yeah, like the pyro was somehow doing some sort of like class-based yeah, revolution yeah. instead of just being out of your mind on drugs. Yeah. Zara, she lived out beyond the walls of the community before marrying the polygamist, so she has some street smarts. Harry, he's a kind of nice little himbo guy, isn't he? He likes to trust people. But Zara's like, no. You know, everybody's out here is going to con you. Yeah, even sweet little children, even infirm little old ladies. like Big old ladies. 
little young ladies. All Salty big children. All, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, this annoyed me a bit. I thought it gets a little bit like a young adult novel here when they're all kind of like, you, you're street smarts and my now, <laughs> you know, we're going to go on an adventure now. They go to buy supplies from this kind of fortified Walmart. Otherwise known as a Walmart. Could you imagine what Walmart bingo must be like in this day? I don't know what that is. They leave town and start trekking. Quote, we became part of a broad river of people walking west on the freeway. That 70s horse with no name song would go down a real treat right about now. They're all heading for Route 101. Not Room 101, but a different book. <laughs> and that'll take them north to Oregon, home of oregano. Um, so it all gets a bit of Grapes of Wrath, or maybe Empire of the Sun, or The Road, or something like that. Lots of refugees walking along a road. Do you pronounce it Roth with an O? Roth, yep. Why are you wearing two monocles? <laughs> they walk in the day and they camp out in the brush at night. Fires are illegal because of the high risk of forest fires. What? In California? In California? These days? Yeah, analogy. Based on the inspiring true story. There are also young men, you know, Keitha-likes, who are armed and they're swarming between the groups looking for people to rob. Lauren worries about being a sharer. She thinks that might let the group... You know, her disability might let her little, her new little posse down. Yeah, she doesn't tell them. She also sees further problems of Bruin when she realizes that Harry kind of has a crush on Zara, and Lauren practically has to get the cat Mr. out so they don't, you know, start doing the sex and end up with a baby, which would make their lives significantly harder. She's like, don't you two dare start f***ing. So poor Lauren has to be, like, chaperone and leader and like cleric, bard, paladin, stenographer. <laughs> so one night the little group is ambushed by strangers and Lauren manages to kill one of them with a boulder. <laughs> I wrote, she's a scholar and a baller. <laughs> Which of course incapacitates her with pain, but you know, she, she bounces back up. She's the Johnny Knoxville of bogus disorders. Nothing keeps her down. She finally has to confess her secret to Harry and Zara. She's like, yeah, I have this condition. And she asks, do you want to go on ahead without me? Because I could be a liability. Zara's a lot more understanding, but Harry is slightly prissy about it. He does a whole, like, how could you keep the secret like this from the whole community? And do I know you at all? Like, all the... Mm. It's, this is the teen novel yeah. bit, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just my dramatic prince, calm down. And he eventually gets over it when Lauren agrees to let him read her diary. She's like, here, you can have all of my secrets. And he kind of gets into the earth. That's such a kind of like, oh, to make it up to you, you can read my, uh, <laughs> the novel I'm writing. <laughs> yeah, you want to read my blog? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's how he learns about Earthseed and all is forgiven. But sexual tension is mounting in the group. So they form a sort of interracial polycule and I once read a joke on Twitter that might be the funniest joke I've ever read that said something to the effect of, if there are two black people who invite a white person into their relationship, it should be called Polly Wanna Cracker. <laughs> I was really tickled by I'm, st I'm gonna be laughing. I was laughing at that all last night. I'm laughing. I was like, all day today, I was like, don't think about Polly Wanna Cracker. Yeah. Okay. I've got a bit of hyper empathy right now. You laughing to a, a joke that's obviously not that funny. It's kind of making me want to laugh a little bit. <laughs> What an ass. I'm gonna cut that little laugh you just did and tack it right uh, on Ah, evil. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that night while camping, 
Zara's like, I'll do the first watch. But then Lauren wakes up to hear her and Harry having sex. Lauren gets really upset because this is obviously really selfish. If they're off fooling around, no one's standing guard. And Lauren, you know, she can't even stand guard while they're having sex because of her her condition, which gives her a kind of vicarious gratification. I've never seen somebody so pissed off to be climaxing. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? That's sort of like a non-consensual voyeurism. And also because she can't help but join in with them. That's if, what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, is this a queer reading? Or are you reading it as a rape? Well, that's the thing, that's what I'm saying. It's kind of, it confuses those sorts of Ooh. categories, doesn't it? Ooh, that's messed up. This is a really interesting scene for that, actually. Yeah. But regardless, she gives Harry a telling off the next day. Yeah. Ooh, I'm very cross with you. We you gave me the best night of my life! <laughs> Petty more, real more. <laughs> so they're all en route. Here's the thing, they have to buy drinking water from private water stations. So these water stations are very dangerous places because people are gathered there and then they get robbed by opportunists. Oh my god, this book is so, like, there's, it's just bleak on every yeah. front. I am rattling my tin can against the prison bar windows, just let me out of this episode. I don't want to sound like a total innocent, right, but I don't think people would be this horrible. You saw people getting into fistfights over toilet paper three years ago, right? I didn't see that. Well, my places, everyone was very, uh... Man, where I was, people, people were aggressive. Oh. At one of these stations, Lauren helps to stop a thief who was stealing water from two refugees with a baby. These people start shadowing our trio, and they look like, quote, potential allies. These people are called Travis and Natividad. The baby is Domingo. Travis. <laughs> we're in California. Yeah. You got your Keiths, you got your Travises. You'll have your Skylers. Ooh. Maybe we'll meet an indigo, or a blaze, or a sage. Just guessing, just spitballing. Yeah. We're going to meet a lot of new people on the road, so I think that we should put in a ding whenever somebody joins their little group. Lauren eyeballs the man. Quote, an unusual deep black complexion, skin so smooth that I can't believe he has ever in his life had a pimple. Looking at him makes me want to touch him and see how all that perfect skin feels. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) Well, she's clearly all, you know, she's gotten a little taste of the Zara Harry action. Oh, exactly. Yeah, maybe. I just put that in my diaries. I want to touch his lovely pimpleness skin. That's weird, isn't it? Do you want to read my diary? (laughs) Yeah, so when she starts preaching Earthseed to the new people, she says, change is ongoing. Everything changes in some way. Size, position, composition, frequency, velocity, thinking, whatever. Every living thing, every bit of matter, all the energy in the universe changes in some way. Travis, he says, oh, sort of like saying God is the second law of thermodynamics. Which I thought, I've always said this, you know I've always said this to you, the second law of thermodynamics is the gateway to cultism. When is Florida gonna ban that? Somebody's gotta protect our kids from entropy, Daniel. <laughs> but Travis knows all of this stuff. What I'm just saying. <laughs> Sorry. No, I like the the interesting thing is that Travis is surprisingly learned for the period, and it's because his mum was a cook in a rich man's house, and Travis used to like sneak into the library, the forbidden library, and read the books. You know, like a slave trying to educate himself. So there's a, another analogy there. True story. So as they're walking, one day they strike up a bit of a conversation with an older man. He had a short, full salt and pepper beard. I decided that I liked his looks. What a handsome old man. His name is Taylor Franklin Boncolet. 
Quote, our last names were an instant bond between us. We were both descended from men who assumed African surnames back during the 1960s. His father and my grandfather had their names legally changed and both had chosen Yoruba replacement names. So this guy, Bonkale, he is one year older than Lauren's father would have been, 57. And there's a weird father-daughter energy between them because you know what? We did not spend the first half of this book doing daddy issues for it not to come out again now. Mm. Thank you very much, Sigmund Freud. And then their, their conversation is interrupted when they hear two women calling for help. Turns out these women got trapped in a fallen building from a recent earthquake and the group helps these slightly injured women and and soon enough the women are following lauren around like she's the grateful dead everyone does that For the grateful living <laughs> one of the women who they rescue asks who they are and harry who's already you know he, he's a little into the stuff already he's like earth seed <laughs> and the woman who like any sane person would do she, she asks if there's some sort of cult and if they are, can she please just walk with them for protection without joining? Taylor Boncalet asks if he can join their group too, and Lauren gets all eyelash fluttery and is like, oh, daddy, daddy, you already have. They get to Salinas, they buy supplies from an another of these sort of fortress shops. There's lots of kind of machine gun mounts and stuff, which I thought was kind of cool. It's Fallout 4, basically. Sure. They buy more guns and some other supplies. Condoms. She buys condoms girl you have known him for like three hours and he is older than your father. no no you can store liquid in them uh, <laughs> water i mean no 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 teenager's main squeeze should be overdue for a prostate exam he is like one of those 42 year old t-birds there's a come on immediately <laughs> <laughs> so lauren buys a radio that tells them not to go via san francisco which they planned because the whole area is in chaos following this earthquake that just happened quote Scavengers, predators, cops, and private armies of security guards seem bent on destroying what's left. Meanwhile, the rich are flying away in helicopters, in that sort of way that they like to do. This isn't funny at all, no, Daniel. Yeah. That night, they wake up amidst this kind of skirmish. They have to keep quiet to survive, but Bancole's gone missing. But then he turns up with a child whose mother got killed in the shooting. And Lauren's pretty unhappy about this because a kid is seriously going to cramp their style. Then, to keep the boy quiet during this continued shootout, Natividad, the mother of the other group, suckles him. Another Grapes of Wrath moment. True story. She's working real hard from Grapes of Wrath. Yeah. I, hope she's, I hope she's paying the Steinbeck estate some kickbacks for this. Yeah. Borrowing quite heavily. Yeah, yeah. The generally, the posse is growing, isn't it? That's the point here. Also, Lauren kisses Bancole, despite thinking him a vain old man. She is in a much better mood about that toddler joining the group, though, after she gets to, like, second base. <laughs> They're both in love with his beard. Ha 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 ha. That's funny. She, she makes that joke. It's not my joke. They're ten strong now, and there's a lot of overlap between if they're a cult, a family, an army, or a neighborhood. That's nice. Could, couldn't it just be all, all of the above? Lauren decides it's time to have a serious discussion with Boncole. She can't do it with him if he's just going to ridicule Earthseed. So she tries to explain the whole concept of her religion to him, and he says... It sounds like some combination of Buddhism, existentialism, Sufism, and I don't know what else. And I was just thinking, though, okay, I can't imagine how cringy this conversation must have been for him, a 57-year-old, to be kind of lectured about this, like, airy, fairy new religion. You and I are far closer to Lauren's age mm. than we are to Bancale's age. And I'm just thinking about if one of our first-year students tried to talk yeah, to us about... Yeah, I'd be so pissed off. I, I would be so mortified. I just... No, I'd be fuming. 
Why? Detroit, the arrogance of the person. <laughs> but the important thing for Boncalais is that she's an 18-year-old he wants to have sex with. So he's like, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, namaste. Would it be crazy if we had a hug with our tops off? <laughs> he sort of humors her, right? And he tells her an important principle she's left out. If everything changes, then even Earthseed is going to change. Her writings are too vague, too simple. The more people she converts, the more people are going to interpret it for their own ends. Mm. And she's like, oh my god, you're taking me seriously. You're actually engaging with me on this. Come to me, my antique lover. And then they do it, and she's kind of kinky about his beard. Then Boncolet asks Lauren to leave the group and run away with him. He says he owns about 300 acres up north, and his sister and extended family are already living there. And Lauren's like, no, not unless the group can come with. My cult is a package deal with me. Love me, love my earth seed. <laughs> and she's like, if we all move up there, we can use your land to start the first earth seed community. Can we have the bit where um, they see a feral gang of cannibal teenagers? There's all these boys and they have this kind of pregnant girl with them and they're all eating a leg. Yeah, I, I can't believe this is the third episode in a row with a blood orgy. But they kind of just shrug it off. It's, you know, they look at these cannibalistic teens and they're like, another damn day. I'm a little concerned by how many books we've had in a row with a blood orgy in it. Like, where are we going to go from here with people eating things they're not supposed to? Is, is our next book going to be Pac-Man fan fiction? Because I got some. More shootings. More encounters. <laughs> They adopt some more waifs and strays, a starving woman called Emery and her young daughter, Bored. That's a joke. Um, the kid's not called Bored, but it's something like Emery Bored. Like Kangaroo and Roo. Anyway, they allow them in on trial basis to see if they can trust them or not. How many more vagabonds can Lauren adopt, though? This is I'm waiting for this to turn into a Tiger King situation. These people, Emery and her daughter, are escaped debt slaves, debt peons from a farm. Next, they take in a single dad, Grayson, and, and their daughter, Doe. Do I like that name or do I hate that name? He was planning on having a few more kids, I think. Raymi, uh, dear, yeah. yeah. Grayson, Grayson is understandably cautious, and Lauren thinks something's really off about him. Grayson is way too jumpy. They discuss Lauren's quote-unquote sharing, and they discover that Emery and Grayson both have hyper-empathy too. Surely a hyper-empath would sense would know hyper-empath because they fit. It's like when you point two mirrors at each other, you double, 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 double feel. Oh, that's messed up. Yeah. Oh, I hate it. Oh, stop it! Take it away. That's how we know. I don't want to think. That's this how we know it's not real. That's why Grayson was being so secretive because. You know, he didn't want people to know about his condition. Anyway, it turns out that the modern-day slavers, you know them, you love them, they pay more for sharers because they can't fight back as easily. You're not going to Spartacus things if you're going to feel every pain that you inflict. This is the corruption of the modern world. Bring me back the gentleman slaver of Robinson Crusoe. Exactly, yeah. So things get worse and worse. I mean, we're, we're almost right at the end. One night they get caught up in a firestorm, which was a literal tornado that caught on fire. I don't remember Fine. this bit. I think I skipped over it. Okay. It's like a climax. You'd think. Yeah, but I missed it. I feel like the climax actually happened when her compound got burnt down. The climax sort of happens in the middle of the novel. Post-apocalypse, anticlimactic, form, content, enmeshed. I like that. So they finally, finally make it to Boncolet's property. But instead of finding his 
Loving sister and family waiting in his buildings, they find instead charred ruins and a bunch of human bones. Mm. Bless this mess, I suppose. <laughs> Boncole is obviously devastated. He goes to the police in a nearby town. But not only do they refuse to investigate, they call him a liar and said he probably never even had a sister. And they steal his money. The Earthseed group decides, you know what, we might as well stay on this land because no place is safe. So why not here? Lauren plants some of her old seeds that she brought with her, and she hopes that they'll grow. And they name their community Acorn. The novel ends by quoting the titular parable of the sower from the Bible. The short version is, like, when you scatter seeds, which is meant to mean religious teachings, some of them fall on the path, some fall on rocky ground, some fall into thorns, but some seeds will fall on good soil and grow. The end. Hooray! I didn't love a lot of that. you like some casting? Um, that wasn't a real question. I would love for this to be a low-key Tarantino film. One of his more sort of old-school ones that's concerned with redemption and a weird sense of grace in an ugly world, rather than his newer films, which to me have felt a little bit more torture-porny. Got I, enough of that in this already. Well, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking a much more like Pulp Fiction, or, or Jackie Brown, honestly, style parable. Hmm. I want Kiki Palmer as Lauren, because I think she would bring sort of Lauren's sense of humor to it. I want Zendaya as Zara, and I want Tom Holland as Harry, because they're dating in real life and that'd be cute. I want Denzel as Boncole, because if an 18-year-old is going to be having sex with a 60-year-old, he better be hot. Denzel Washington. How many other Denzels do you know? There's a lot of Denzels in Cornwall. Really? <laughs> yeah. I've got a relative called Denzel. <laughs> I want your Cornish postman, Denzel. <laughs> yeah. Denzel Trugowan. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought as, as Lauren's dad, just for shits and gigs, put in Samuel L. Jackson. I had a dream for a really good um, casting. An actual dream, like you woke up in yeah, the middle of yeah. the night. And... It was Wes Anderson. I was like, oh my god, that's such a perfect... But I don't remember, what... it wasn't this book. This, imagine Wes, Wes Anderson's Parable of the Sower. I would go broke <laughs> watching Wes Anderson's Parable of the Sower. I would show up every fucking day at the cinema and go, one more please. Yeah. Good weeds, please. <laughs> now for our segment, Bad Goodreads Reviews. It was boring on top of boring, sprinkled with boring, with a side of boring. So what the hell was so good about it that you gave it five stars? Ugh. Sheeple. One star. Was that a genuine use of sheeple? There is language which annoys me. The F word and the GD word are said, the latter more so than the former. The romance is also descriptive, which turns me away. One star. I think somebody went in thinking this was like actually a biblical parable of the sower situation and got a real nasty surprise. What's the GD word? Damn. Oh, I just God. Toilet paper, except it's made of sandpaper for no reason. Reading it is a bit like it is. wiping your ass for sandpaper. <laughs> Narrative form, two oh. halves. A game of two halves. I like that the, the before times and the after times are feels like there's a nice clean break. Microcosm, again. Her little world has a, an apocalypse. In a bigger apocalypse. But so what did you think of that? The kind of the, the siege narrative and then the, the road narrative. I'm not sure which one I preferred 
more. I, I think they were perfectly balanced for me. You, I know you preferred the siege narrative more, but they're both so episodic. Mm. I think I maybe I pre- slightly preferred the road narrative because it felt like there was so much world building done in the compound bit that at least we had gotten through all of that by the time we got to the road narrative. Mm. Yeah. So that could, it ex- it could exist a little bit more freely. Yeah, I kind of didn't like that. Actually, I prefer. I think one of my favourite things about like speculative fiction is them just like breadcrumbing us the, <laughs> the the stuff about the world. I just, I liked all the kind of the survivalists them trying to survive, but also the weird like they're kind of conservative and often quite like bourgeois, like middle class suburban values, and trying to make those gel. And, and in fact, they often do very mm-hmm. much gel that yeah. kind of that siege mentality and like a kind of property owning middle class mentality. It felt more satirical. Well, that, that's the thing is yeah. There's a lot of this. The first time I read this, I was like. This book feels a little bit weird, especially sort of written by a black woman. I was like, is this pro-gun? Is this anti-homeless? There's something quite conservative in Lauren's mm. outlook. But then you see that these sort of attitudes that have shaped her, this is this because she talks about like, well, I still get my own bedroom at home, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, there are people on the street. Yeah. Like most of America is on the street. You're being a little bit of a snot. Yeah. And I think Butler here is being quietly satirical about, like, these are the conditions that have led to the world being like yeah, this. Yeah, no, of course. Unreliable narrator Claxon. Yeah, I was just thinking about the sort of road narrative where they're, I guess, vaguely aiming for Canada, but it is kind of all over the map. It's like, San Francisco, no. Here, there, no. You know, mm. like, Boncalais place. It's a spinning compass. Yeah, despite road narratives having a sort of linearity to them, this one... I, it's confounded in that. I got actually quite a few Lolita vibes here where you just sort of, you're yeah, traversing all over. And the, <gasps> oh my god, Bancola and, and the, Lauren, I didn't even think I, that. I wondered if she borrowed a little bit from Lolita in that. Yeah, the depravity of American culture as well. A little bit with all the fortified yeah. shops and churches and things. Here's my hyper-empathy theory. Okay. That, but I don't think it's a real thing so like well it is a real thing but i don't think it's like an actual like sort of physiological condition okay or you don't like seeing other people get hurt that's not that unusual is it you know i wouldn't really like shooting someone either so i kind of thought it's in this sort of highly like alienated and medicalized culture mm-hmm. but also one in which everybody's really like cut off from the, each other and mm-hmm. any kind of empathy is like pathologized that's kind of what i thought oh was going on oh i so like that she's that. just and there's that bit where she says oh it doesn't work for sound so i can hear someone screaming and it won't affect me certain parts of her humanity are like atrophied but certain parts are still intact whereas other people are just like why should i give a shit like keith says that doesn't he when he shoots someone's like she says doesn't it even bother you that you took someone's life you killed a man and he's like nah it doesn't bother me i was scared at first but after that i felt nothing and it's like surely he's the one who's kind of damage, not her. Oh, that is such a great reading. I really like yeah. that. I mean, obviously you can still have that it's a real condition, yeah. but it's still telling us something about this hyper-cruel world, that yeah. to care about others and to feel others' pain is a, is a disability. And it's interesting as well that her dad, who is trying to be a good father, but also trying to protect her, you know, the fact that he's like, it's not real, you can overcome this, mm. you can... And I'm like, you're a religious leader, you should be preaching empathy, and then he's got his submachine gun. Mm, yeah, exactly, So, yeah. like, the dad's relationship, it, that maps perfectly onto that yeah, as well. The, yeah, it doesn't practice what he preaches, yeah. If we're talking about the form, though, can we talk about why there are so many epigrams? Mm. So every chapter, we get another little verse from her Earthseed thing, and I will admit that all of her little, her cute little thoughts, her little manifesto... I just saw that and I'm like, no, nah, that's a song in a Tolkien novel. Skip. <laughs> I just instantly... Text within a text type stuff, yeah. But it is slightly hard to avoid. Mm. Are we being converted? 
Yeah, I quite like the, the little epigram, so maybe I was converted. But so. I mean, because as, as we go on, at first I was rolling my eyes about, like, oh, she's coming up with her own religion because mm. she's rebelling against Dad, the, the Baptist minister. And over time I was like, this is a perfectly reasonable thing. Yeah. It's pretty level-headed for a teenager. I expected, like, I, I'm like, give me some Gnosticism, bitch. Like, that's where I would have been yeah, at yeah, 17. Yeah, yeah. But also, I, I kind of feel like what's the point of saying just changes everything and that you need to consciously embody change because it's... It's, it doesn't. It's so incredibly wide, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's the point of finding a religion if it's not got all kind of mm. mad stuff in it? Rather than just being like, yeah, things change. Try and push it in your direction, but you've got to accept that sometimes you can't. It's just like some kind of weird activist stoicism. Well, but I wondered if that was Octavia Butler deliberately responding to all the other sort of male apocalyptic texts mm. where it's, yeah, you have to actively steer things in your direction and fuck everybody mm, else and yeah, be, be no, really aggressive with it and here it's more I move with the tide and I'm not going to be horrible about it I'll be stoic in a different way not stoic like oh I'm such a big strong man I can kill my zombie wife and not even flinch yeah. you know, when the- every man's dream <laughs> no you're right yeah it's, it's, a more, like- it's a more gentle it's still about praxis it's still about having agency in a changing world but it's more but you don't, gentle, yeah, you don't, or less need, kind of it dominate, domineering. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. you're right. But the, I think retreading a lot of these same patterns as well is really interesting. The company towns coming back, the idea of colonization, the fact that she recalls that all the time. Mm. She recalls all the slavery, and yet she's like, "Oh, we'll we'll go colonize the stars. Yeah, we'll rebuild." Yeah. So it's it that that idea of middle class privilege that yeah. she's grown up in. You know that she's going to repeat quite a lot of these same problems. Yeah, she's not a pure heroine. Even though if if her belief system tries to circumvent some of the shortcomings of mm-hmm. previous ideologies, it's clear that there are some like glaring hypocrisies in what she yeah. says. But I quite like which I like. Yeah. No, yeah, that's good. That, yeah. That made for a more interesting reading than if she were an absolutely perfect Mary Sue. Yeah. What about all the sexual violence? Because there's loads of it in the text that we haven't really covered. But I kind of felt it almost felt a bit prurient or like sensationalistic. Like you were saying about all the gun stuff. It felt it felt like one of those kind of right wing American shock jocks that says like, "What would you do without a gun?" You know, the the rapists have come into your home, and you know, there's a lot yeah. of that in this, isn't there? And I kind of. It's quite upsetting to read, isn't it? There's a lot of There's, rape in it. We we have really toned Glossed down over it. a lot and of stuff that happens in this. It felt weird, but I couldn't quite feel offended by it. I think in part because of the tone in which it's written, which is these horrible things happen. They have been happening. Mm. I think that she calls back on the past so much, and she's like, it's not that this is the future. These are things that yeah, have really yeah, happened, yeah, yeah, yeah. especially to black women. I mean, I know that that's a um, sort of catchphrase in the uh, the sort of dystopia community, it's like, oh, oh, it's a dystopia when things that happen to black people mm-hmm. now start happening yeah. to rich yeah. white people. But so, I, th- for me, I felt like it was it was a bit of a commentary on that, and especially like the fact that Lauren is constantly dusting herself off and going, well, that was traumatic. We keep going. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I talked about that before, where I view this as sort of. It seems on its surface like a conservative text. You know, yeah, the yeah, homeless yeah, yeah. are bad, being middle class and owning property is good, guns are good. But there is also something here about the, the radical self-care of a black woman to constantly persevere. And I'm not going to be bogged down in this. I'm going to be optimistic. Mm. We will create Earthseed. I will lead. We will, yeah, you yeah. know, reach the promised land. Yeah, it's about agency, yeah. So here's some advice. If there is ever a dream sequence in a novel or a movie or whatever, pay attention to it for thematic links because that's the author working overtime to tell you this is going to be important. I don't know about you, Daniel, but I really hate a dream sequence. I think they're really tacky. Dallas. <laughs> that's a reference our 
high school listeners will get. Right, so here's our clue to the next episode. Actually, no. There's no clue this time. Our next episode is going to be our audience pick from the last season. We will be covering the picture of Dorian Gray. Oh, you spelled that. So, by way of an update, at the time of recording, it's coming up to Easter, so we're going to be taking a bit of a short break, but only kind of a break. So we won't have a proper episode next. We won't have a proper episode until early May. But in two weeks' time, we will have some bonus content coming up on our normal schedule. And we are pairing up with Liam Knight, a.k.a. Dystopia Junkie, who you might know from Twitter, from his YouTube channel, where he creates lots of supplementary sources for English literature students who are doing their A-levels or GCSEs. So he's going to be joining us in the studio to give us some extra content. We're going to talk about Parable of the Sower. We'll be talking about things. He's an expert on dystopia. Dystopia and post-apocalyptic texts. So tune in in two weeks to hear sort of more of that. And please write into our email if you have book suggestions. Tweet us at SMS. Yeah, I struggle with that. You know where to tweet us. Right. Do you want to say goodbye to the fine people? See ya next time see you till next goodbye thanks for listening to save me from my shelf our music is the overture to don giovanni by mozart and cover art is by Catherine wu our thanks to aston university's center for critical inquiry and to society and culture for funding the startup of this podcast contact us at save me from my shelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on twitter and do not I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.